0: that perhaps one of the greatest sins of omission was the sin of ingratitude. And I want to talk to you today about gratitude. David was a man after God's own heart. Do you know one of the great reasons? Because uniquely in the Psalms, it seems you cannot read very many verses without David seemingly to exalt. On the harp, or maybe as he was skipping before the ark when it came back from Kiriath Jabram, and as Michael looked out the window and thought he was making a fool of himself in front of all the young ladies of Israel, he was doing pirouettes and cartwheels and at the top of his lungs doing one thing that would embarrass most of us down to our socks. You know what he was doing? Praising God. But when was the last time you awoke on the couple of mornings that we've enjoyed the last two days and walked outside in your own backyard and looked up to the heavens and just breathed a big air, a lungful of fresh air, and said, Thanks, God in heaven, how wonderful, how magnificent, how mighty, how powerful you are. What a gorgeous day you've given me. Last autumn, when I was about 12,500 feet up in the Rocky Mountains, Up at Timberline, I would walk along and look at those huge, tall trees, about 150 years old, going up maybe a couple hundred feet into the sky. Below Timberline in Colorado, look at those gigantic, huge, jutting peaks of solid granite. And all around me was life, whether a little black ant running along on his own busy errand or whether a little lichen clinging to a rock or some moss on the side of a tree or the tree itself or bull elk, or deer running around, and signs of black bear had been around, and squirrels, and blue jays, and just teeming life. And the most unbelievable colors, and of course everything you look at, just like some master landscape architect had placed each rock and tree and each gorgeous grove of quaking aspen and what they call black timber, firs and balsams and pines and blue spruce. And you couldn't help but walk along and just say, Mighty art thou, O eternal God, holy, magnificent, and great are you, O creator God, and greatly to be praised. And sometimes, look around, make sure no one else is there to hear, and say it out loud. It is a worshipful experience, and I think oftentimes we miss out. As we're turning to Psalm 103, let me ask you a question. Most of you here are parents, and if not, if you're not parents yet, then you are children of parents. That is for sure, the 103rd Psalm. Love is not a one-way street. Do you suppose it is possible, just possible, notwithstanding our feeble human physical frame, our foibles, our bad attitudes and our failings? And all that we are and our imperfections, do you suppose it's possible that Almighty God, as our Heavenly Father, covets or desires our love? I know we want His love. Yes, that's obvious. We want His forgiveness. We want His mercy. We want His love. We want to dwell under a blanket of his protection we want his angels to be about us we don't have an automobile we don't want an automobile accident we don't want to injure ourselves on our home appliances we don't want to be taking a bath and somebody knocked the hair dryer off while it's running into the bathtub which would electrocute us immediately uh, we don't want every kind of tragedy you can imagine the telephone late at night rings and says that our son or our daughter's been in a wreck or something no we don't want those things so we continually have these needs and we cry out to God, oh, please help me here and give me that and alleviate this and help me there and heal me and relieve my suffering and find me a job and and relieve my pain and get me out of this, oh, if you'll just help me through this problem. Is it possible that with all these desires for God's healing, for God's mercy, for God's intervention, that we sometimes forget to give very much back to Him? Is it possible that He actually wants a continual and virtually a daily expression of our love toward Him, and that God even thrives on it? Now, what if, as a parent, everything you ever did for your children was a one-way street? And continually, when you are swaddling and cleaning and bathing and nurturing and helping to rear a tiny child from those first several years when there is no response at all beyond a little gurgle or a giggle. And of course you can kind of pat them on the chest and you can kiss them on the belly and make noises and make funny faces at them and you get this little grin. But they can't say anything back. They don't say, oh, thanks a lot, Mom, I feel a lot better now that you bathed me and powdered me. They're just kind of happy and shaking a rattle and watching their hand go by and wonder what that was. They don't have any coordination. They don't understand how to reciprocate. And oftentimes we see children that because of certain parental examples and because of a certain attitude that reigns in a family or a home, they don't even realize to what extent they are a factory and that they are forming molds and they are producing products. And so oftentimes they don't know why a child might turn out about four or five years of age being stolid, uncommunicative, unresponsive unthankful, just sits, gets down from the dinner table and goes about his business, and almost never says, Thanks, Mom, or Thanks, Dad. And there are children like that. I wonder why. Could it be that that type of example is not there in the home, and that because people are not sitting there at a mealtime and praying and saying continually, Thanks to God for that food, and thanks to each other, and doing little things like one single rose or a candlelight dinner at home, and put a mat on the floor, and the old wine bottle with a candle in it, turn the lights out, and sit down, and have a luau barbecue instead of just doing everything routinely, sending each other little cards, having little surprises once in a while, and then continually giving and voicing thanks to each other. So the child sees this as an example, and the child becomes thankful. I can cite an example. matter of fact, I think I'll turn there first and we'll come back to the 103rd Psalm. Let's turn to Luke 17, verse 11. I want to cite that. I think that's apropos right now. Luke 17, verse 11, Jesus Christ ran across this very same attitude. A striking example and a very obvious reason why it's in the Bible. It came to pass, 11th verse of Luke, the 17th chapter, as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria. Now the Samarians, of course, were those dark, swarthy people who were looked upon as the pariahs of society, who had been moved down into northern Israel after the Babylonian captivity. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men. Now, these were Samaritans, or the black people of that local village. They were not Jews, who were lepers, a horrible, ugly, stinking, disfiguring disease, which stood afar off. Now, they stood afar off because that was the law. It was not only just decorum, and polite, it was the law. They had to stand afar off, and they had to shout out, leper, leper, and let people get out of their way, or they had to get off the path, and there was a large securitist course of some kind, maybe 50, 80, 100 yards, whatever, they had to take to stay away from people. So they couldn't come up next to him. They lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, just like the letters we get. Have mercy, intervene in prayer. Oh, how badly we need your prayer. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go, show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. They didn't even get to the priest. They were willing to obey what he said. Go and show themselves to the priest. The priest would probably tell them to go and cleanse themselves in the river or to dip themselves maybe seven times, like the example of the Syrian king that came down during the days of Elisha. And they didn't even get to the priest before they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. Thank you, Lord. Great is your name. Praise God. Thanks, God. He said in his language over and over again on his way back to Jesus, Oh, boy, I'm healed, and God did it. With a loud voice. He didn't look around to find out if anybody was listening. He didn't care. He was so happy. He had been afflicted with not only a terrible disfiguring disease where your nose falls off and your ears fall off and chunks of skin just wither away and your fingers and toes, but eventually it kills you. And so with a loud voice he was glorifying God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Fell down on his face at the feet of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. We got a letter this last week from a prostitute who was also a many, many decades or years-long alcoholic, a gallon of whiskey a day, she told me in her letter. And she feels like praising God audibly and every day and over and over again because of the unbelievable wretchedness of her past life in contrast with the beauty of her present life that she has found God, she's found Jesus Christ, she knows she is saved, and as Jesus said to the Pharisees, prostitutes, that is, harlots and publicans, are going to go into the kingdom of God before you do. And there's never been a prostitute that didn't know what she was. And so they don't have these false attitudes, they don't have pretenses like some of the Pharisees and the religious fanatics did. And this lady looks about in the church and she sees these people who have so much to be thankful for and she looks at the stolid, sleepy faces. She even talks about people sitting and going to sleep in church and so on and she just is in a constant state of disbelief. She can't believe that people can be that unappreciative or that unthankful for what they have because she is so thankful for what she has because the contrast is so great. She's not a whore anymore. She's a Christian. Does God forgive whores? You bet. Jesus did. Remember the town prostitute that came into him? And he was at dinner at Levi's place, one of the famous Pharisees. And the woman found him and actually crawled beneath the table and had this little vial of oil and started pouring it on his feet. And she was sobbing and bawling quietly. And the tears were dripping down. And she was actually using the hair of her head to wipe his feet. Let me ask you this, if Jesus Christ walked in here right now wearing the kind of garments that he no doubt wore, with calloused feet, dark with dust and dirt, is there a man or a woman who would kneel before that man and very gently clean, wash, and maybe even bend over and kiss those feet? Think about it. Don't answer to me. It's not to me. You need to answer. Why do you think he puts us through the humility of bowing before one another, bending down on one or two knees at the Passover time and washing one another's feet? He washed the disciples' feet because it's an act of love and humility. How beautiful are the feet of those upon the mountain that preach the gospel of glad tidings or of good news, says the word of God. This sin of ingratitude, the sin of taking things for granted, believe it or not, is at an all-time high in one place on this earth today and has traditionally been the sin of the United States of America. We are, as a nation, guilty, as no other people have ever been, of taking the incredibly precious freedoms and liberties, the incredible outpouring of all of the technology of science and of industry and all of the glittering, glamorous things that we have around us, of our homes and automobiles, of the wonderful outpouring of material wealth that we have enjoyed in this great and beautiful land that has about 90-some percent of the wealth you would think of the world in comparison with the way most people live. Now, Northwestern Europe is, of course, coming up equal, if not a little ahead in some places like West Germany. And other nations, like Japan, are beginning to catch up. But for decades and decades, America led the world in all those areas, and yet we have been, among all people, the most unthankful, the most dissatisfied. The one word on our lips is more, not thank you for what we have, but more, more of it. So this sin of ingratitude is something that is commonplace. Here were ten who were healed. And one came back, loudly praising God, and Jesus said in verse 17, "...were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine?" Now, there is no answer given. But then Jesus said, "...there are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger." So he said unto him, "...arise, go your way, your faith has made you whole." But you see, the others were made whole as well. But they didn't even have time to come back and give thanks." It's a trait. It is a shortcoming of human nature. In the 103rd Psalm, David said, Bless the Eternal, O my soul, and all that is within me bless his holy name. Bless the Eternal, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities. Now, if you ever have the exercise and it's not a very healthy one or a very good one of going back and remembering every rotten, dirty thing you ever did, Take that word, all, and be thankful for it. Yes, even that deed, even that word, even that action, even that omission, that forgetfulness, even that time when you hurt somebody so badly, he can forgive that one. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, from Sheol or the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, Now, in the case of some of these people who wrote these letters, there was a lady with her daughter who lived with her, who has another daughter, and she was so destitute she did not know where in the world they were going to eat during the next month. And she thought maybe they were going to starve. I'm sure that she will not. But let me ask you a question, don't feel that it sounds calloused. Let me merely ask you a question, depending upon what nation where you are, and in what society, and at what time, especially in the coming Great Tribulation, when the infrastructure of civilization and society as we know it is going to come apart at the seams, and where roving gangs are going to be marauding through neighborhoods and taking at the point of a gun things from your refrigerators and your freezers, dwindling means of survival, and there are going to be blood baths in various local communities all over the United States when. The police and all the other agencies will simply be unable to cope because of the terrible, devastating drought and famine, the attacks from without, the inability of our armed forces and our various governmental law enforcement agencies to do anything about it. And there are going to be people in this beloved United States of America of ours who are going to starve to death. The first five chapters of Ezekiel portray that terrible time when people will eventually be driven to the point they will once again regress to do what some of those did in the Japanese prison camps during World War II when they were carrying the bodies of their own cellmates out to bury them and could be seen surreptitiously using a jackknife or even a piece of tin to snip off a piece of withered thigh to carry it in their pocket to eat a little later on. And where the fifth chapter, the first five chapters of Ezekiel portray eventually cannibalism. Let's assume that someone who is a Christian actually is so destitute, so poverty-stricken, so hungry, that they just plain starve to death. Now, that's terrible. And yet they say that the last stages of starvation is not unpleasant, that they're just a numbness, and it's sort of like freezing. There's a point beyond which you're no longer cold, but you don't feel anything, and they're just a numbness, and people just go to sleep. Does it not also say in the Psalms, Precious in the sight of the Eternal is the death of his saints? Does it not also say through the Apostle Paul that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us? And the parable of Lazarus and the rich man of Lazarus with the open running sores and the dogs that were licking him, lying at the gate of the sumptuously faring rich man who sat behind gilded portals with his servants scurrying to bring him everything from pheasant under glass to a a leg of lamb or something, and he did not even have a crumb from his table for the poor starving beggar that was right outside his front door. And so God gave this contrast as an example of those who are going to go into Gehenna fire who will not even turn their heads to the side to look upon the poverty and the terrible need of some other human being, and who are bereft of compassion and bereft of empathy, and who are not truly thankful for what they have. There are many such examples, not that God hates the rich and loves only the poor. But there was a potential for that rich man to make Lazarus' life so much more pleasant if he'd merely hired him and made him one of his stable hands, given him just a little bit of the food he gave to his dogs. It was the the total contemptuousness and the lack of any attention whatsoever that God took issue with. It is not that the poor are always righteous, because they're not, or that the rich are always unrighteous, because that is also not true. Joseph of Arimathea was very rich. Many great men of God in the Bible were very rich. One of the most generous men of whom you can read was Andrew Carnegie, who was an incredible multimillionaire and who gave away tens of millions of dollars trying to help humankind. It is merely when we do not have gratitude and when we do not thank God for what we have and when we do not have the desire and the willingness to share it. I don't want to be so callous as to say, if a Christian starves to death, so what? Because that isn't what I mean. But when the Bible says, precious, in the sight of the eternal is the death of one of his saints, you've got to ask why. Well, because to God, that is the same thing as the moment when your husband said to you when you were in labor, honey, it's a boy. It is a moment when God knows, (sighs) with a sigh of relief, that one is safe. That one died in Christ. That one is secure for the kingdom of God. There's no more question involving this person. They starved to death, and it's a lot of other people's fault. But this poor, pitiful human being who starved to death is mine. He's in the kingdom of God the instant I wake him up in the resurrection. Yes, it's going to be terrible for those who allowed him to starve. But remember, precious in the sight of the eternal is the death of his saints, no matter how that death may come about, at the cruel hands of torture or the cruel hands of indifference. It also says in the fifth verse of Psalm 103, "...who satisfies your mouth with good things," that is, of course, the exception and not the case with the poverty-stricken or people with the street for their bed, "...so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Eternal executes righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He makes known his ways and a Moses." And then comes a recounting of all of the great things that he has done to those that keep his covenant. and how he remembers them and so on. Notice chapter 104, it begins, Bless the eternal, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who lays the beams of his chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, and who walks upon the wings of the wind. Are you ever outside walking amidst flowers and planting and trees where you can hardly contain yourself and want to actually give thanks to God? Or do you always just say, oh, look at this morning glory. Isn't it pretty? Or you're going along and say, look at that sunset, honey. Yeah, it sure is nice. I remember years ago, my brother was so absolutely incensed because we'd been living in California for some years, and a girl came out there from one of the southeastern states somewhere, and he wanted to take her over and show her Grauman's Chinese Theater. Of course, all of the things that were basically man-made, but... You know, the mountains there in Southern California and the beaches, and took her over to Grauman's Chinese Theater to show her the stars, fingerprints, and the sidewalk, and took her to show her all the great sights of Los Angeles and Southern California and Hollywood. Well, this girl, like a lot of youngsters, wanted to be, obviously, sophisticated. It was during a time when they say the hippie walked up to the Grand Canyon and took his big chain, he flipped it around, he says, like, uh, hey, Dad, uh, dig that crazy ditch. And then walked away. And it was sort of an attitude, you know. It wasn't, look, the Grand Canyon, isn't it glorious? There was a desire on the part of many people to appear, well, oh, um, no big deal. And so this girl was going to be very chic, and she was going to be mature. Frustrated my poor brother out of his gourd. He wanted her to say, oh, wow, look at that. Or isn't that beautiful? Or, oh, man, I can't believe it. Look at this. And to share with him, because he was trying to see through her eyes all these wonderful things, that this little girl who had never been anywhere, never done anything, been in a little tiny small town, but because she was playing Little Miss Sophisticated, it was always ho-hum, bored him out of his skull. I don't know if he ever dated a girl again, but it was just an example. It just popped into the back of my head that I remember when my brother was only about 22 or 3 or 4, a year and a half older than I, many years ago and ran into that type of an attitude of someone who was just unable to voice appreciation and to be inspiring to be around because she would help you appreciate something by telling you how beautiful or how inspiring or well, how wonderful it was. You see why David who was a man who could kill two hundred Philistines in a matter of a few days David who was a man who was capable of great sins but at the same time was a man who was a repenter and repented when the knowledge of that sin came to him as Samuel brought him the example of the little lamb, and when he lost the first child that was born to Bathsheba. The David who would pray heartbroken prayers of repentance as he did in the 51st Psalm, never failed throughout his entire life to exalt before God, to praise God, to give thanks to God. Now David wrote all of this. Isn't it a tragic, sad shame? that we have only the words, because nearly all of this was inspired by the Almighty God in music, in song. Now, we have people like my uncle and many others, hundreds of others, who have taken these psalms, and that's what it means, songs, and put these words to music. And some of them are fantastically beautiful. Becky was asking me, can we include some of these songs of praise? And showed, showed me one example of one that is absolutely A gorgeous little song all it really says is praise God I would don't I I don't know because I don't know the kind of music David David was inspired to write that you and I would immediately say oh that's my favorite song because I don't know if some of it would have been in a minor key and would have been played on a three or four or five string instrument if you might not have liked the music or not I just know that from his heart when that was inspired and it went back up to God it is exactly like a little child unsolicited and unasked might come up to you sometime right out of the blue and crawl up on your lap and put his or her arms around your neck and say you're the greatest dad or the greatest mom in the world and kiss you soundly on the cheek. Now what parent would not tear up and just have his heart about burst for a child to voluntarily show that kind of affection? If we desire so deeply voluntary affection from others, from friends, from members of the church, from members of our distant and our close family, from our spouses, from our children, and from each other. Does God desire that kind of affection coming back to him from us? I cannot believe that God exists in heaven utterly impervious, untouched, and unmoved by our response. I like to think that you and I have the ability that if God could cry to even cause a tear in the eye of God. Is that a possibility? Mm -hmm. Do you suppose we could be so thankful sometime that we could actually just look up to God and hardly find our voices to tell him how great And marvelous and wonderful and beautiful and magnificent and powerful and how much we love him and expect that he likes to hear that that it makes him smile and that maybe he is even moved who gives us emotion who is the architect of love who gives us the ability to love Who allows us to experience that feeling that is called love, which, after all, is directed away from self and is solicitous and is outgoing and is giving and sharing and the earnest desire to see the one who is being loved happy and protected and safe and successful and well, rather than an incoming lust to have or to control or possess, love is willing to let go. The greatest example of love in all of history is God the Father giving his only Son that whoever believes on him should not perish. Love, let's go. Remember the song, turn around and you're three, turn around and you're four. Turn around and you're a young girl going out of the door. Turn around, turn around, turn around and you're a young girl going out of the door kind of a plaintive little song about a mom who turns around about three times in her busy life, it goes by so fast, and her daughter is leaving the home and going to get married or going to college or going to live someplace else, and it all happens so quickly. Well, most of us have a love that is possessive. It is not a love that is willing to let go. It is a love that wants to have, that wants to keep, wants to control. It is not a love that is willing to turn loose, so to speak, and to let go. God the Father was willing to let go. Jesus Christ was willing to let go of his own physical human life, to lay down his life. That is the most unselfish expression of love in the history of the universe. God the Father giving his Son, and the Son willingly becoming a sacrifice. And the type of that was Abraham. And the test of being able to offer Isaac and of not withholding his only Son, and actually determining to go through with it until God provided a ram instead. In the 136th Psalm, there are several other examples. O oh, give thanks unto the Eternal, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. O oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. O give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him, now in each case when it says to him throughout the remainder of this psalm, you put a colon after, O give thanks to God, colon, to him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. O give thanks to him that by wisdom has made the heavens, and so on. And you want to read the entirety of that very, very slowly in a prayerful attitude. And notice what it says. Verse 6. Give thanks to him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him that made great lights, Mars and Jupiter, they call them by pagan names. God knows their real names and are certainly not Mars and Jupiter, uh, names of the Greeks and Romans. The sun to rule by day. Cannot you on a day like we have experienced here today and are experiencing and will in the afternoon and yesterday when it was so cool and this heat wave was broken and the dry air came in from the north, can you go out in 60 degrees and look up to the heavens and give thanks to God? You ever give thanks to God for the sun? You know, most people think, well, why would you do something like that? That is so stupid to think of going along giving God thanks for the sun. Okay, fine, have it your way. You miss my point entirely. I, I, I don't think I could ever move or inspire or wake up somebody with that attitude. That's like the hippie that says, dig that crazy ditch. He just doesn't get it just doesn't understand that life is so precious and so short. And that when we are able to have a reasonable amount of good health and a reasonable place to live and a reasonable amount of sleep and a reasonable amount of good-tasting, savory food and reasonable eyesight and our senses about us and our families in our home, that to avoid to give God thanks is one of the crassest most stupid, calloused sins of disregard and of ingratitude than you can imagine. Because these people who write these piteous letters to us, tear-stained letters, I'm sorry, I got tears on the page, some of them actually will tell you that, cannot in the same way that most of us can, go about every single day praising God and giving thanks. Some of them don't know how because they're in such terrible and deep duress and trouble that they're in such pain that there is no feeling of thanksgiving. They've got to, first of all, get relief. They've got to know that they're forgiven. They're like the town prostitute who could only cry and wet down Christ's feet with the hair of her head and her tears and wipe them gently because he had looked upon her and said, Daughter, your sins be forgiven you. And that gigantic weight lifted off her shoulders was so great to her that he just broke her up emotionally. And she didn't care what people thought about No more body English or body language. She didn't care that she was on her knees. She didn't care who saw her. She didn't care how she looked or what she was wearing. She didn't care about the body gestures. She wasn't thinking about uh, some demand of the changing society that said, well, women don't act like that in public. It wasn't a matter of, of thinking about what somebody else was going to think. There was Christ. There were her sins behind her, washed away, and she was going to show how deeply she appreciated it. Give thanks to God, it says in verse 9, for the moon and the stars to rule by night. To him it smote Egypt, etc. So here's the entire chapter showing why we ought to give thanks. In verse 23, who redeemed us in our low estate. In verse 24, who has redeemed us from our enemies. In verse 25, who gives food to all flesh. And whether I'm high in the mountains looking at a a marmot or looking at an elk walk by, or if I'm looking at a lichen clinging to a a log or a stump or perhaps a rock, everything is fed. I never saw an ant about to starve to death. I never saw a coney or a marmot in the rocks that was not fat and well-fed for the winter. I don't see the creatures in my backyard that delight me every morning when the mockingbirds are going through their entire repertoire of about and 49 or whatever it is, different songs, and I'm just sitting there, and the thing is flying up in the air and singing while it's flying and landing again and flying while it's on the wing from one part of my house to the fence and then flying up into the tree and singing the whole time. And I'm just looking at it and saying, sing away. It's beautiful. sounds great to me. My wife and I are enjoying it. Now, I can give thanks to God for that bird and try to shoot the next cat that gets in my backyard, but then that's another story. I don't really want to shoot a neighbor's cat, but on the other hand, I don't like them getting my baby bluebirds, either. But you know, that's cats got to live. But they don't need to live on my songbirds. Let them get uh, somebody else's songbirds. They're going to celebrate, or did they already? I've, I've been hearing about it, and it's example that, that I think I'll pass on to you. Mrs. Rose Kennedy is about 100 years of age. You know, I don't care what you think about the Kennedy family, I just want you to think about this woman as a human being for a minute. Even though she's Irish Catholic, that this woman has endured in her lifetime the loss of her number one son that she and her husband Joe had been grooming to become the President of the United States, who was shot down in World War II and killed. One of her sons lived to become the President and was murdered by an assassin in Dallas. Another son became a presidential candidate and was murdered by an assassin in Los Angeles. A daughter was killed in a crash of some kind. She's had many other tragedies in her family, down to her grandchildren, one of whom lost a leg, and all kinds of heartache. And here this woman is now about to be 100 years of age. And I think somebody asked her, I don't know her exact words, but I can give you the sense of it, to what did she attribute her long life? And how did she just keep life and limb together and avoid going crazy and coping with all this and just make it through all these problems? Well, she said she had learned from somewhere long ago to get upset and cry about those things about which you can do nothing. Don't Don't ever do that if you can't do anything about it. Basically, it's merely don't cry over spilled milk. But if you can do something about it, then get busy and do something. But if you can't do anything about it, just pick up and go on, don't get upset. Because it doesn't do you any good to get upset over something you can't control. Now, I'm sure that doesn't mean that she wasn't upset and that there weren't plenty of tears. But there's got to be some iron in this lady to exist through all of those tragedies. She's had the highs and the lows of human life, as you might well imagine. Could any mother be prouder than the day she watched the inauguration of her own son as the President of the United States of America? But then, what was the low of the tragedy on the day she got the news from Dallas? Only those of you who are mothers, and older perhaps and mature, can understand in some small way what that woman went through. So take that as a lesson. She is, I think in many ways, thankful, and I know she found a particular philosophy that stood her very well, stood her in good stead through life. I want to turn now to the 10th chapter of the book of Matthew, where Jesus Christ said the time was going to come when those of us doing his work were going to experience a lot of things we don't want to experience. He said in verse 16 of the 10th chapter of Matthew, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be you therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and will scourge you in their synagogues, and you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake." for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaks in you. And then he talked about a brother, delivering up a brother, the time when, as he said, iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold in Matthew 24. People will actually betray one another as Sabbath keepers and as those who do not believe in the Trinity, and as those who are members of God's true church, the father, the child, the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. You can't imagine anything more heartless than that. Then children saying, yes, my father and my mother are these Sabbath keepers, and knowing that they are condemning them to death. And you will be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endures, that is, sticks it out, remembers, hangs in there, hangs tough, doesn't give up, perseveres to the end, and that means probably the end of his life, or the end of the torture, or the end of that period of time, there's something to keep in the back of your mind. It doesn't matter what phase of your life through which you are passing. You can always say at any given phase of your life, this too shall pass. Because everything is so temporary. A temporary time of terrible trouble, financial trouble, family trouble, trials you just think like there's no light at the end of the tunnel? We're never going to get out of this. Just say to yourself, no, this too shall pass. It is a phase, and eventually it will be behind me, and we will get through this. All right. He that endures to the end shall be saved. And when they persecute you in this city, flee you into another. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his lord. Because they persecuted Christ, they're going to persecute us. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his lord. If they called the master of the house Baalzebub, if they called Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Satan called him by the name of the devil, said that he was demon-possessed and did great miracles and healed people, made deaf boys like my sons to hear, and did it by the power of the devil, what will they say about us? Now, there are some of us in God's church who can be, quote, upset. I'm so upset. What upsets us? Oh, it could be anything from the way they hemmed your curtains. I know what I'm talking about. It can be the way somebody ladles the beans in the serving line at the Feast of Tabernacles. Let me tell you, there are some of the stupidest, simplest little things that upset us. Christ wasn't upset. Never a time in his life when he was upset. Now, I probably would be upset if I was talking to somebody and all of a sudden, just with a great big full clearing of his mouth, he spit right there. And I got my eyes shut just in time... It's dripping down over my nose, off my chin, and I got his spittle all over my face. Would you say that that would be the time when I might, might be forgiven if I got upset? Well, I don't know. Christ had that happen to him. You know what? It didn't upset him. He didn't sin. He didn't hate. He didn't want to spit back. He didn't want to kill the guy. He didn't want to see him disintegrate into a cinder like a piece of burnt toast in the oven, which most of us would. We can get upset by somebody getting in front of us in the traffic line. Somebody cuts you out when he's passing you in traffic, and you're, it'll ruin your whole afternoon. A stupid jerk, what's he think he's doing? I mean, this is the way we are. Now, he goes on to talk about fear, and fear not them, therefore, because there's nothing covered that shall be, shall not be revealed. And what I tell you in darkness, that speak in the light. Notice verse 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Now that word means the life, and actually if you study the entirety of it, along with Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, that his spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God, that Christ is the first begotten, and he's the firstborn among many brethren, and the first fruits from the dead and that we have this treasure in earthly tabernacles. And what is that treasure? It is the new creature in Christ. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Your life is secure to God because it's a new creature as much as a young expectant mother married with her husband beside her and has announced to her husband, I'm expecting then they can rejoice because they know already it's a sure thing, it's absolutely a fait accompli, a new member of their family is on the way, and soon they'll get a look at their own precious little child, be it boy or girl. It's on the way, right? That's the way it is with us when we are begotten of God, and a new creature of Christ, or in Christ, is actually begotten in our minds and begins to develop and to form character And these attributes of character we're talking about today, that's why a Christian will be able to look at a firing squad and say, go ahead, shoot, you can kill this, but you can't kill me. Look at someone with a knife and say, go ahead, cut, you can cut this, but you can't kill me. Go ahead, destroy this flesh. Because you cannot destroy the new creature in Christ, this treasure that dwells in an earthly, fleshly tabernacle, but for a few years, a little short lifespan that is over so quick, it's like the batting of an eye, and then it's all gone. And where was it? So, when Almighty God has given us, first of all, this breath of life, those of us who can see and who are not blind, those of us who can hear and are not deaf, those of us who feel, those of us who love, those of us who have families about us, those of us that have a roof over our head and running water indoors and flushing toilets and refrigerators and automobiles, and food waiting for us in the larder in the freezer when we get home, and a little bit of money in our pocket, and a job to go to, Let me tell you, you could come to my office on Friday morning at the prayer breakfast and read through all the letters with me, and you would be down on your chair, on your knees, weeping before you got very far. So doesn't it look a little awkward, a little ridiculous, for those of us who have been given so much, and above all things have been given forgiveness, and even a little bit of the life of God to dwell in our minds and our human spirits, to be unthankful and ungrateful, and to go along day in and day out, never thinking maybe we ought to crawl into his lap and throw our arms around our Heavenly Father and say, you are a great God, and there is no way I can express my love for you. We need to love God. We need to praise God. We need to let him know that we love him and we praise him. And there are ways to do it beyond doing it audibly in church. There are ways to write the hymns and the poems we think and feel. There are ways to write down things in cards and notes that we send to others. There are flowers and gifts to give and fruit and food baskets to give. There is sometimes a surreptitious $20 bill to be slipped into the hands of someone who is in poverty and has need. There is a letter of encouragement to be written back to these people. Now, I know that you run the risk of people who take advantage. Wouldn't you rather lean over that way and be taken advantage of a few times than to be like the rich man with Lazarus outside the gate and never open your heart or your wallet to help somebody who has desperate need? The Apostle Paul said, Be ye also thankful, and talked about quench not the spirit, and to continually give praise and thanks in everything in the name of Jesus Christ, for this is the will of God towards you. I'm thankful for this day. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for my family, for all of you, my friends, for the wonderful job that God has given me, for this life that I live, for my children, my brand-new daughter-in-law, for my lovely little grandson, for this week, for this Sabbath day, for life itself, and for the new creature in Christ that is within me. Praise God. Thanks be to God and bless his holy name.